Good afternoon and welcome to Reboot 2030, the Democracy School's social media channel. My name is Nicole Heller, and today I have as my guest, Elena Rigel Anderson. Elena is an economist, a futurist, and a building activist, and we'll be talking a lot more about that a little later on. Um, Elena has written 19 books, among them um, Metamodernity in 2019 and Bildung, uh, Keep Growing in 2020. She's won two Democracy Awards and is one of the founders of Nordic Bildung, a Copenhagen-based uh, think tank. She's also a full member of the Club of Rome. Now, I see she's already in the waiting room, so let me just invite her in. And there she is. There she is. Hello. Hi. Come on, everything. <laughs> Good afternoon. I've just said a few words about you, um, about your background. So let's jump straight in, Elena. I said you're an economist, a futurist, and a building activist, but I haven't mentioned so far that you also were a leading comedy writer in a previous life and that you've studied theology. So you've had a huge and a very long journey behind you, bring a wealth of experience uh, to your work. Um, Today, I think you're primarily here as a building activist, but it crosses over into futurology, I believe, because some of the stuff you're talking about very much has to do with the kind of future that we would like to see. Um, so, Lena, let me hand over to you, and maybe you just introduce yourself a little bit and say just something about your background um, and how you've come to become a building activist. And then, of course, as we move on, we will be going into this idea, into this notion in greater detail. So over to you, Lene. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction. Uh, it is correct. I used to write comedy for television. I'm not a comedian, so I, I'm only uh, funny on demand. And um, <laughs> no, I, I don't do comedy. I, uh, I wrote for uh, uh, some of the uh, entertainment programs on Danish television, and I was, I was not one of the uh, head writers. But um, I had a lot of fun doing it. I learned a lot from it. And yes, I do have three professional backgrounds. And I actually used the combination in my work as a futurist, because the, I mean, the, the background as a, as a business economist, of course, has taught me a lot about the way that uh, our society works, the legislation, the economy, all that stuff, there's sort of the machinery behind our society. Um, theology, I did not complete my studies, uh, but it, I mean, I, I did pass the uh, classical Greek exam and the uh, Latin exam, uh, I have not used it since. Uh, once in a while, it's very useful to know the Greek letters, but that's about it. That has given me an understanding of the really deep roots of uh, Western civilization. So coming from that perspective, uh, uh, I, I have the sense of where, where are things coming from? Not so much how are they working right now, but where are they coming from? And what- But when you say- Sorry, let me just kind of like, uh, 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 when you say we were coming from, are you talking about as a historical we? Yes, sure, but also coming... a, a, a moral and philosophical background and who, who came up with these ideas and what was before it. And I think very often when we look at history and, and I mean, in order to be able to extrapolate from now out into the future, we need to know, I mean, what went before so that what is the trajectory somehow? And, and to see the big patterns in history and what is it, when did technology turn everything upside down and when was the last time we were like, everything was up in the air and we needed to reboot. Um, so, so theology has given me that. Um, it was a, a, a Lutheran Protestant theology at, a, at the University of Copenhagen. So it has a very uh, serious academic approach to theology. So it's not a like a pre preacher's seminary. It, it, it is a, an academic um, program. And from that, I, I mean, I'd already, I, I knew the Bible. I mean, I, I knew the tradition, but I had not read the, the text in a, in a context. Um, I had not had the historical context for it. And as I said, I mean, when we want to look at history, we have a tendency to look at history from our perspective. And then we look back at the Greek and say, Oh, um, how barbarian that they had slaves in the Greek society. It was, I mean, it was barbarian. But when you look at what came before that, the Greek society was very civilized in a modern sense and had made huge progress for, you know, democracy, freedom for the men. Yes, but it was better than the tyranny that went before it. And then when you look at, at the 
um, the, the Torah, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and then you look at, at the life world of the Jews in the Bronze Age, and you look back and say, wow, looking from our perspective, what primitive people. But then when you look at it <laughs> into history from the other direction, it's like, oh, wow, they came up with that. I never thought that this was a thing that somebody, you know, really was the big groundbreaking new idea. So that is what I what I got from that. And then the, the comedy writing told me something about, you know, telling stories, getting people to laugh, but also, so what is story structure? And, and it's sort of a backdoor to our structuring and understanding of reality because when you tell a story and you want people to listen there's there's structure to it so it says something about how how how's our mind working so so those three different perspectives on the reality uh that we're living in and the challenges that we're facing has been uh very useful for me and then uh, the first series of books that i that i wrote um was big history and so i had to on my own, go back even further than, than the theology class uh, curriculum. So, um, so, so I based on that and on science and, and um, chaos theory, network theory, complexity theory, and other um, sort of descriptions of the patterns according to which things tend to evolve. Um, I have looked at history, and based on that, I do futurism. Um, and um, there is something I try I'm... to create scenarios that are meaningful and ways of looking at the world that, that allows us to see things that we didn't see before. There, there's something interesting. And so I want to come back to the comedy. There's something quite intriguing about this. If you do a, any kind of fictional uh, drama, whatever, you don't really have to be interested in, in the real world. I mean, you, you know, because you're not a documentary filmmaker, you're, you're making, you're, it's fiction and it's fun and it's 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 a it's a parallel world. With comedy, it's somewhat different, isn't it? I mean, I noticed this when I moved to the UK. It took me a long time to understand the jokes, being German, and vice versa. Having moved back to to Germany, I had to acclimatize to the German sense of humor. So there is a um, there's an interesting thing. It's once you understand the humor of a people or the humor of a culture, you kind of you have understood a lot about that culture. Um, and so when you are a comedy writer. You not only tell a story, but it is a story that resonates uh, with. Right. Plus, it. I mean, either it's funny or it not. It's not. You can write mediocre drama, and you can have great actors who go in and lift the whole thing, and you think that you've watched an amazing piece. If you write crappy humor, you can have. I mean, the best comedians, and it's just you know, <laughs> drops to the floor, and nothing happens. So uh, either you, you, you hit the, the real spot or it doesn't work. And but there's, a, there's an interesting kind of link for me in, in your work. It's a sort of a link between the fictional, the imaginary, uh, our imagination on the one hand, but it's very much grounded in cultural reality. And I think this is, I think this is something that when we talk about, you know, later on when we talk about building and part of its purpose to, to gain to give us a better understanding of the world we live in within i see a certain parallel there you know building can be quite ivory tower and removed but you seem to have a very strong interest in always keeping those two worlds together the world of the imaginary and the world of the factional and empirical is that is that a fair statement absolutely and i also i mean humor i mean you can have very sort of a uh, highbrow uh, humor that only like a minute minority gets. And then you can have the extremely popular uh, humor that um, usually has sexual undertones um, or worse um, and anything in there in between. And, and you need to, you know, reach, I mean, hit, reach your audience <clears throat> in the right way. That's right. Uh, and, and one thing that is very crucial in humor that very few people think about is that pain is really a huge part of it and it's it's uh it's about triggering our fear but doing it in a safe way and there's some interesting studies with mice where they're tickled so they 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 laugh and, uh, <laughs> and you can actually google laughing mice uh or and go on youtube and write laughing mice or something like that and you will see some scientists you know, tickling some mice, and then it goes squeaky, <laughs> and and it's interpreted as uh, laughter. And the reason why it's interpreted as laughter is because they come back for more. So when they stop tickling them, they come back. So it's this 
fear, it, it creates a fear, but in a safe way. And, and you do the same thing with, with humor. You, I mean, the, the classical way of, of telling a story is that you have like three characters, you know, the, the priest, the rabbi, and the pastor or something, and they walk into a bar, uh, and then the first one goes something, the second one goes something, and then the third one is the punchline. And the way, the reason why it works is that the first one is an example, the second one confirms the first one, now you feel safe, and then you dismantle it with the third example, and you're like up in the air, it's a bit, you know, frightening, <laughs> until you realize what the point is, and then, then you laugh because it wasn't frightening at all. So it, it's that tension between fear and, um, you know, uh, safety somehow, and, and oh, I get it. Uh, and then you laugh. And this is also why it doesn't work if you explain a joke, because then you just lost it. So there was another thing I picked up when I was doing a little bit of reading up on you is, is that one of the reasons you're sort of saying that you moved on from, from comedy writing um, to futurology and the work you're doing today is that comedy, for some reason, and you probably can say more about this, uh, lends itself to sort of bashing the past or, you know, looking back. But it's a lot more difficult to write comedy about about the future um, or, or to, 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 to criticize uh, um, thing, you know. So maybe I thought that was a really, really interesting thought after the, after the fact and, and, and anticipating. Can, can you say a little bit more about that? And the, 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 the... Yes, I mean, particularly satire is, you know, pointing fingers at. And when you point fingers at, um, you, I mean, you can kick up and you can kick down or you can kick out into your, you know, own level or you can, you know, make fun of yourself, which is really the only charming kind of humor there is. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly the kicking down kind of humor is not charming. The, the kicking up uh, humor where you mock the, the rulers or, or people in power or people with too much money is absolutely appropriate and in place but it's not necessarily going to solve a lot of problems, but it can be this, you know, um, release of tension in society. And it can be the, I mean, uh, showing solidarity with, uh, you know, among all the little, among all the little guys, uh, those <laughs> of us who are in the precariat or, you know, have nothing um, or are in the, you know, middle class seeing that the bottom is falling out of the economy. I mean, all the, everybody who is, you know, not Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. We need to laugh at them, uh, where we used to laugh at the, the rulers and, uh, you know. The kings and queens and, yeah. And, and also, I mean, corrupt uh, uh, politicians, prime ministers and so forth. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, authoritarian political leaders around the world that uh, we deserve to laugh at. But the came the point when that wasn't enough for you anymore, when you were kind of reaching beyond that. And can you tell us a little bit about, about that transition? Yeah, so I mean, what I realized was, um, I mean, actually with entertainment on television, I realized that the the Saturday or Friday evening family entertainment, I was actually doing children's programming that adults could, uh, uh, you know, watch because you want to reach the eight-year-olds so that they stay in front of the screen and then their parents sit there with them. So uh, if you're one of the parents who spend your Friday evening, Saturday evening, watching family entertainment with your eight-year-olds, you should just realize that you're actually being treated like an eight-year-old by other adults who are creating shows that your children can comprehend and you're not spending your time dealing with the future and all the important stuff that is here in the world. You need to spend time with your children, but you might wanna spend them on other stuff than children programming for the entire family. That was just sort of a, you know, a, a footnote to what I'm going to say, which is the, <laughs> um, the, the, the satire, the humor can deconstruct and it can point fingers. Um, it can, be a, a sort of a safety vault, uh, letting steam out uh, that, and, and it can deal with pain that you cannot deal with in any other uh, ways. It can deal with frustration, but it's not solving any problems. So um, I felt the need for solving some problems and, and starting these conversations among adults that get us safely into the future and help us create a future worth living in. And humor just was not the tool. Um, so some, it's just not very funny. I mean, some of the future is just not even worth making fun of. 
I, I mean, it, it's absolutely worth making fun of, but it's not taking us anywhere. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just saying this does not work, but it doesn't say when this doesn't work, where should we go? And I, I want to do the, the, when this is not enough, where should we go? Where, where should we go as a, as a society, as, as families, as individuals, as, as citizens? And so um, we, have to, we have to have those conversations as one of them are, we're starting that right now. So I, I realized that humor was not the platform I I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot from it. I think it's really important. But but I had uh, I had served my um, my part of that uh, part of the media landscape and needed to move on to something else. And then the, the other really interesting aspect about you is, and that's just amazingly impressive. You have written at this stage, I believe. I hope I don't forget it. But I think nineteen books. Yes. I mean, most people are happy if they write like two or three books in their lifetime, and you have done this more or less in the last, not even 20 years, 15 years, I suppose. Or that, that's a huge output. Um, and um, so, but you have invested significantly more sort of emotional energy in this notion of building, uh, because you also set up an institute or you know, a think tank, a Nordic building, um, and, and you are campaigning around that issue, maybe in the way you haven't campaigned around other issues in the past. Uh, but you might have, I don't want to uh, sort of jump the gun here, but but it to me appears that, that this is something that's, you know, that you've stumbled across something that really does matter to you in a, in a big way. Do, do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about what that actually is? Because I think anybody listening is probably at this point thinking, well, what are they talking about? Yes. So so let's get into a little bit into the substance of it, uh, this idea of a Bildung Rose. And you said in our preliminary chat that you wanted to kind of move towards this slowly. So you wanted to start off with some definitions beforehand. Um, let's go straight into this. The word Bildung means a lot to me. I'm German, it's a German word. Anybody who is not German will think, well, this is a spelling mistake. Yes. Um, so maybe, maybe we start there. So Bildung comes from the German word Bild, uh, which means image. And originally the image was the image of Christ when we're back in the 1600s. And then with the enlightenment, it kind of sort of left the vocabulary and people were not so much into shaping themselves and their personal character in the image of Christ. Uh, instead uh, from around 1770-ish and onwards, it became a secular phenomenon where philosophers were dealing with, so how do I shape myself in my own self-image, how do I become uh, entirely me? How do I become an autonomous individual? How do I become, I mean, how do I, how do I become a team player and how do I become an autonomous individual? How do I become somebody that other people trust? And how do I become a moral person who can take a moral stand and have, has a moral backbone? Let me just ask a question here. Why is that important to become you? Uh, or why has it become important during that period of enlightenment? What, what, what is the kind of the background to that? Why does it, is it all about self-realization and building an ego? Or what is the context here? Uh, so, um, I mean, it, it, it had a sort of a, a, a prelude with the philosopher Herder, um, who was writing about how culture and individuals had matured over the course of history. And he living in the 1770s, he did not know how old the, the world actually was. So they took the Bible as more or less for granted, even though there were signs that it may have been, the world may have been older than that. And there were some fossils that they had found that they didn't really make sense yet because Darwin hadn't you know, discovered what Darwin discovered. So like, they were really like, what, where did the world come from? And where did humans come from? And how did we get to where we are? And so, uh, very politically incorrect, he talked about the upbringing or the building of humans and the human species. And so he compared the, uh, the um, cultural evolution to the uh, maturing of the individual. And he started by saying that, so these uh, Middle Eastern nomadic tribes, they were like the toddler. And then you had the Phoenicians who were like the a little bit older child. And then you had the Greek who were uh, an early sort of like a seven, 10 year old. And then you had the Romans who were the teenagers. And then you had the Christians who were the 
young adults, but of course they were Catholic and he was a Protestant. So the real adults would be the Protestants, which was what he was. Um, and, and so he compared that development. And I mean, there is, there is something to it, but you can't compare people 5,000 years ago to a modern toddler. I mean, that, of course you can't. Um, but but the, the sense that our um, understanding of the world, our uh, ability, the, how societies allow individual autonomy has of course changed over the course of history. Uh, and with bigger and bigger societies, we've also distributed uh, power and individual responsibility to people because otherwise rulers would have to apply extreme amounts of violence if you want, you know, 100,000 people in a ring-walled city to play by the same rules, you either have to use a lot of violence or you have to invent stories that they all internalize so that they behave in the same ways and have more or less the same expectations, moral values, so that you can have trust within the ring-walled city. Then, of course, you need enemies in order to keep that story going, and that's where we get into the you know trouble, and we have that with nationalism or national chauvinism in the modern world, but we still have to have within a society, some level of shared narratives, language, and what Herder then called spirit. And that's when we get into this whole idea of, so what is this upbringing process that brings us to sharing that spirit, to have that shared sense of self and collective self, to have that sense of belonging in a huge society. And what happened in the 1700s, late 1700s, was that um, the enlightenment was as I said, I mean, with the fossils and all that stuff going on, new knowledge about the world, a lot of the old stories were up in the air and they were struggling with how do we deal with this? And of course, he and Goethe and Schiller and Fichte and Hegel and all these guys who were gathered in, in Jena in, in, uh, in one of the German states were exploring this among themselves in the bourgeois sea. So they were really just thinking about Bildung and shaping yourself in your personal image and you know, unfolding your personality and becoming all that you can be, as the, I guess the American army would uh, say, um, are, that was just for themselves in the bourgeois sea. They were not thinking about the, the peasants and the workers, um, but the notion that you go through an emotional and moral development from not just in childhood, that was, Rousseau described that in 1762, which was really a you know Copernican you know turnaround of, of European thinking. And what um, Rousseau contributed with was the notion that emotions matter, uh, and the emotional development was what he was describing in this book uh, named Emile from 1762. And all these German thinkers read Rousseau, and so did the, the, the Swiss pedagogue Pestalozzi, and he was also writing about Bildung. So Bildung is a combination of your uh, moral and emotional development and what we usually call education. And really education should include the Bildung and the moral and emotional development. But when we talk about education, particularly in the aftermath of the invention of the PISA test, we think of education increasingly as what can be measured, the, the knowledge that we can transfer from one person to the next. And it doesn't just, just have- the yeah. PISA test, I mean, I think a lot of people in education, of course, know it. And we, we do see the kind of the league tables every so often. And people go, oh God, we've kind of fallen back in place. But you could you very briefly say what it is and what it measures so that, that we have a- I mean, the PISA test is, uh, uh, has been developed by the OECD. And by the way, it's kind of strange that we call ourselves a civilization and it's not the pedagogues and the teachers who have developed the measurement for good education. It's the economists. I mean, there's something wrong here. So anyway, yeah. this economic organization for a certain kind of industrialized societies have made a test for I think it's like all the 15 year olds in all these nation states and once every five years, they measure reading skills, math skills, uh, basic knowledge and geography. But I think they also measure now whether people can, I guess, go online and book a train ticket, some practical stuff. But still all of this knowledge that has been transferred in this way can be measured. And so, I mean, if I try to teach you math, uh, we can work on it. And then after two weeks, I can test how much of this can you do on your own? And we can do it with grammar, we can do it with, uh, you know, knowledge, we can do it with biology, and I can test how much, you know, 
got stuck and how much of it you can you know answer the right questions um but that is only part of what education should be by the way education in, in that respect is also you know practical learning and transfer of knowledge like how to bake a bread or fix a bicycle or um the traffic rules for that matter it, it's not just what happens in school um when when we talk about knowledge transfer <coughs> so then there's the, the the other part of building which is the knowledge that you cannot transfer which is so how do you handle yourself if you need to play a game and you have to play by the rules for the first time when you're a five-year-old and if you can't figure out how to play by the rules the other kids are not going to play with you anymore and that kind of learning is not something we can transfer but i can send the five-year-old out into play with the other kids again and again until he or she knows how to play by the rules and suddenly gets new friends um, and then hopefully the child will learn, okay, so if I'm a good pal, I have friends tomorrow. And if I have friends tomorrow, we can do other fun stuff. And, and later, I mean, you learn to stand in line and keep your place in the line. You, I mean, you suffer a heartbreak and you come over that and you, you know, uh, start a family, you go to your first job interview, say something really stupid and you learn that I shouldn't have said that. So all this stuff. Um, and how you handle yourself is the emotional and moral development. And we cannot, um, I, I cannot test if, if you actually got it. I mean, I can tell you about my experiences, but I cannot transfer them. And if you go through an experience like mine, I cannot test what that did to you. We can have a conversation about it. And if we spend enough time together, I can sense and you can sense on me okay so is this a person who is uh has the moral and emotional development that i would expect for that person's age is this somebody who's worth hanging out with but um we can't make a test for that i won't i mean say that nobody's trying but it is going to uh be a disaster if we actually try to test this because i mean what would what would it mean to score eight on friendship ability I mean, that would just be horrible. There's, I suppose, another aspect is, is what one is, is the, the kind of, the, you know, the soft skills, the, the, the hard to quantify ones. And those are, you've just talked about those. But there's another thing, and it's sort of, as far as I know, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but when in art education, um, specifically in fine art, when you go to, an, you know, like an academy and you study fine art, from a certain level on, certain, certainly at a master's level, um, you know, there, there are a lot of academies that do not award, you know, grades because the, the whole notion of fine education is about student-centric learning. So as a, you know, as, a, as an artist, you set your own learning goals uh, and you, you design together with your supervisor and, uh, and your teacher a learning path um, that allows you to realize and to progress along, along that path. Uh, now, how can you compare that path with that path, that kind of entirely different. You have to, in a way, assess people on their own terms. Um, and so, so this is another aspect. It's when, when, when learning isn't about competition, but when learning is about development, you know, the grading, the kind of quantification of he's this good compared to her who's only that good, it kind of moves in the background. Um, and of course, there are other areas where it's not quite so clear. In fine art, you're still do, producing a product and people will still have an opinion on this. But there's other aspects, as you said, to do with character development, where it's even more difficult because again, to some extent, and that's kind of Dewey's kind of like notion is that is, you know, to some extent through experiential, experiential learning, it's very much about developing on your own terms within a moral framework, presumably, but still very much sure. on your own terms. But I mean, there, there's a, a fundamental difference between, difference between the arts and the sciences, for instance, because in the sciences, you want people to know their math and you want them to know the method. That's right. And you want them, I mean, you want scientists to get the right, I mean, the right kind of answers in, in the right way through the right process. That's right. So here you have to, I mean, it actually makes sense to measure and test before we let this physicist work on on the next you know nanotechnology or uh nuclear power plant that's right do they know their math it's worth testing i mean i'm all yeah. for it but then when you have somebody who plays the violin and plus i mean i want all the physicists to know the same kind of math 
but I also want them to be, I mean, think individually. They have to be able to, to challenge each other. But, um, it, it, I mean, they have to be exact in what they're doing. And then when you have the violinist, then it is all about their personality and their emotional range and how can they express that emotional range through an instrument. And you can only get to that by, you know, getting in touch with your emotions and learning to play. I mean, it, in order for it to be not just reproduction of whatever is on the sheets, you have to, you know, really know the instrument. You have to be one with the instrument. And then you express what you have inside yourself through the, the melody and the rhythm and everything that was in, in the sheet of music. So you go, I mean, you, you listen to music because it moves you. You listen to music because it touches something inside you. And it is the other human being that you want to feel when you listen to that music. And you both want to listen to the violinist and say Mozart who wrote the music. So there's this whole, I mean, human experience that, you know, can lift us up and or get us down or get us excited and all that stuff. And that, that is where uh, particularly Schiller is, is interesting in his concept of Bildung because he says that personal development, he talks about three different kinds of people, uh, the person who's, who's caught in his or her emotions uh, and therefore is not free because the emotions define everything. And the second kind of person who is has sort of has transcended the emotions by internalizing the norms of society and therefore is not free either because the expectations of other people are defining what I'm doing, what I find right and what I'm choosing to do. So they're not free either. The only free and moral person is the person who's then transcended the, uh, what he calls, he calls it the, the person of reason uh, the person who follows the rationale of society, the person who has transcended those expectations and can make up his or her own mind and feel his own emotions and knows what is best for society and what works in society and can then combine it in his or her own way. And that is the person with Bildung, but the process is also Bildung. And what Schiller says is that from being in the throes of your emotions and to becoming the person of reason, aesthetics, the calming beauty, can sort of align your emotions with the emotions of others. And once you have been brought into that, then you are, in a modern term, a team player. And we need team players. We need to go through this process, which is also why it's so interesting that teenagers who are uh, you know, in this process of becoming team players in society and within their family, I guess everybody who's had teenage children knows how hard this can be, but they identify very often with a certain kind of music that shapes their sense of group belonging. And through that, they become socialized into one subculture with a certain kind of norms. And through that experience, we can then, you know, see, okay, so here's this person who is into rap music or punk music or uh, brunch or whatever it is. Um, once they belong to that subculture, They've been socialized into something. Now they can take that experience and also later become conscientious citizens. And then, you know, you, you learn what it means to be an adult in our society. You play by the rules. You've internalized them. You can be trusted by other adults. You get good jobs and you buy a house and then your wife leaves you or the husband runs away with somebody else. And it's like everything that I worked for collapsed. What am I going to do now? Um, and that is when you can sort of break out of this prison of the expectations of others and find out, so who am I? But Schiller says there's also another way of doing it, which is that we can have the aesthetics, the beauty that wakes us up and shakes us up so that we can feel our emotions again and transcend this, you know, rationale of society and feel our own emotions again. So, so what so you're saying? The aesthetics and the personal development go together and, and that is and, and this is a building process. So this so, building thing is a really multifaceted, rich, complex phenomenon. So if I understand you correctly, what you're sort of saying is there's different, uh, and I'm introducing a, one of your terms here, so uh, 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 um, that there's different domains, if you like, uh, in, in the kind of learning experience. Uh, and, and each domain, in a way, 
demands its own sort of learning style and also of course has its own learning objectives and they are not just they're not just somewhat different on a, on a spectrum but they're fundamentally different they're qualitatively different as you said earlier if i if, if i'm if, if i study physics then yes, I want to be tested. But if I if I study fine art, then I want to be measured against my own development. And these are two very fundamentally different styles. So I think this leads on to the next idea, which is I think something uh, that's really worth talking about at length. And that's your uh, your building uh, building rose model. Maybe you can maybe you can sort of dive into this and uh, yes. yeah. And and the uh, you know uh, smart viewer has noticed that I have this really really advanced piece of AV equipment on uh, the uh, wall behind me because I was told really? I couldn't bring any slides, but I insisted that I could do a drawing. That's right, you outwitted so, <laughs> me. <laughs> so I'm going to do that now. Uh, and yes, I have uh, created a model that is called the Bildung Rose, um, and what it describes is, I would say, any functioning society through seven domains and um the one domain that i mean and, and all societies have these domains one is production it's great i can read it really well it's good excellent yeah i works. will do this more often okay so another um domain in society is technology and then there is a domain of the aesthetics And then there is power. All societies have this. And there is a, a domain of um, factual knowledge. But in the modern world, we have a whole sector who takes care of this, and that is science. So it's a process of creating a certain kind of knowledge. And it's the kind of knowledge that has been tested and tested and tested until nobody could prove it wrong anymore, and then becomes a scientific theory. So this is science. My colleague is not going to be happy if I start writing out here. Um, and then we have a narrative in all societies. And narrative can be a religion. It can be uh, the history about who is our who is our people, who is our country, where are we coming from. Uh, but it can also be political ideology. So this is really about the stories that we keep telling in order to tell ourselves who we are and who's a good person. Um, we have it in the modern world also in some of the archetypical stories like in, in James Bond, for instance. I mean, the, the, it's basically a Messiah story, but it's in a, a modern dress. Um, and we keep telling these stories over and over again. And that's why, you know, when you go to the movie theater, uh, who is the villain and who is the good guy? and who will survive. Uh, then you get into postmodernism, we deconstruct everything and the bad guys win. But until then, uh, the narrative was telling us who's the good guy and, and how do you, and this is also where the building comes in, how do you shape yourself in this image? Who, who would I like to be between uh, James Bond and Blofeld and uh, you know Ms. Moneypenny? I have to, I mean, I'm trying to find out. Um, and then the last one is ethics. And, and the, the way that I distinguish between uh, moral values and ethics uh, is that moral values are uh, the, the guiding principles in uh, familiar situations. And it is what we have embedded in our narrative. Ethics are the principles that guide us in unfamiliar situations. It's sort of underneath the, the moral values and so when we have unfamiliar situations, like when new technologies are uh, disrupting everything, we can't go to our moral values anymore because they, they don't suffice. I mean, we, so you have social media. Can you share a, a nude picture of your ex when it was on paper and it took you know, hours to sit in the dark chamber and you know, expose these pictures? Yes, you could share your one, now one nasty people just to mock your ex. Wasn't, it was nice, but it was not a catastrophe. That doesn't work anymore. So we need ethics because the moral values cannot guide us, but the ethics tell us that hmm, we're in a completely new situation. What are the principles behind not sharing a nude picture of your ex? Well, it's that, um, you. I mean, 
the this this is just not um, the, the dignity of that person is more important than me having this you know little kick out of uh, making him or her look ridiculous. So we need to go to the ethics ethics and figure out. So what was the principle behind the the, the idea that you uh, couldn't do this or that because in a new situation we have to do it in a different way. And so the reason why it's called a rose is because it's like little flower with petals in it and i'm really going to try not to hit the wall here so um so that would be the building rose and <laughs> with growing societies i usually you know illustrate them as arrows um when society grows these domains have to uh grow as well in in complexity in uh, expertise and the way that the rose is constructed is that those um, domains that are neighboring collaborate really easily. Uh, I mean, in production and aesthetics, you have industrial design, for instance, but you also have the whole advertising industry. So, I mean, there's a lot of collaboration between production and aesthetics. You also have a narrative and uh, aesthetics where you have religion using the most, you know, fantastic aesthetics available of the time in order to get people, you know, to come to temple and, and pray and have that transcendent uh, experience that the arts can provide. Uh, and then you have, of course, the ethics. Science also has ethics, but it's different ethics than you have in, in the moral values. Uh, but the ethics that define the process in science is what makes it science. It isn't just about looking out the window and saying, oh, is it raining or is it not raining? Uh, it is about saying, okay, we have a, a process for a hypothesis saying, I guess it's raining. I look out the window, water is coming down. I had my, my hypothesis confirmed and now I have knowledge. Um, and then I can have it peer reviewed. I can check it with my you know, friends. Is this enough water for it to be rain or is it just fog? And then we can discuss that and somebody will, you know, sent back the peer review and say, Lena, that is not rain at all, it's just fog. So, um, so that is the ethics behind science. And then of course, um, and so the reason why it's called the building rose and not the societal rose is that in order for us to thrive in society, we need to know some of all of this. Our inner world needs to grasp the outer world. And particularly um, when we are voting uh, in order to find the right politicians, we need to understand some of all of this and we need to elect people who also understand some of all of this. And we also need as professionals not to be, you know, completely absorbed by, you know, the one thing into which we have specialized ourselves. We need to know some of all of it because we need to be able to communicate what it is we do with other people who come from a different background. We also need to be citizens who can bring that with which we are, you know, in a unique position to contribute to society into that society. Um, and uh, so what, what, I mean, here you produce new knowledge, but you also produce new knowledge in aesthetics, but it's a different kind of knowledge. It's a new symbolic world. And so if, if we take the music and the, you know, uh, really, you know, avant-garde uh, musician, for instance, they know all the, you know, the, the, the catalog, the, 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 they know how to play the classics. And then they reach the boundary of what this culture is capable of explaining with music. And then you push the envelope. You push the boundary of what is this genre of music capable of doing. And then 100 years ago, they had jazz. Uh, 70 years ago, they had Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Uh, and now, um, I mean, 20 years ago, it was like house and, and rap music. And now it's a, a completely different kind of music with a lot of auto-tune and it's becoming more and more electronic, even the human voice. Um, and there are so many genres. I mean, you can't just say there's like one, one thing. So, so each of these domains, uh, we need to understand some of all of them in order to not, you know, uh, be you know, confused when we go out into our own culture and in order right. to make I mean, uh, informed decisions. 
I had a sort of a kind of, if you like, sort of two political narratives in the back of my mind, which you can quite nicely project onto onto your model, uh, and it, it it conjures, it brings up very very different societies, if you like. And of course, you know, as a voter, as as a citizen, I will be voting on this proposal or on that. And the one proposal you can call it the American dream, from the dishwasher to the millionaire. It's meritocracy, and it's a race to the top. Um, and um, How about over and here. That's right. And, and, and there's something about this is like, I think that the, the ethical version of this means for as long as you're a good sport, for as long as you participate, there is always charity to kind of to, to cushion the fall if, if you don't make it to the top or not even to a point where you can sustain an existence. So that is a sort of the kind of, you know, dishwasher to millionaire, you know, at least I tried. If I haven't succeeded, at least I tried. There's, there's another model, which is leave no one behind. It's kind of the opposite, isn't it? It's like it's a social welfare model where you sort of say, well, you know, the weakest chain, the weakest link in the chain is what we need to base our, you know, our policies on so that nobody falls through the cracks. And of course, if you take those two, leave no one behind on the one hand and the American dream, you know, from dishwasher to millionaire on the other, both have their mythology, of course, uh, and both have their supporters, but they mean very different things. And if you operationalize it across your building rows, you get very, very different systems of, of yes. knowledge. Um, yeah. Now, just, just sort of on from there, um, if you were to sort of, superimpose your building rose model on existing curricula, um, on existing school structures, um, you know, you know what people learn in school. My sense is, and maybe we can go through this very briefly, um, um, you know, my sense is that it will show how far removed we are from this kind of political approach, because yeah. what we learn in school is very clustered in some areas. And it's like, it, we're, we're the, I mean, we're really upgrading everybody's skills for this. And we're willing to all, I mean, for this, we're willing to pay for science if it is useful here. Um, we have even handed over our political system to the market and said, oh, the market can fix it. So political, I mean, the, the, the I mean, government, parliaments, uh, political institutions uh, have said that uh, we forget about all of this stuff, the, the narrative and the ethics and, and discussion about what which kind of model is it that we want. We just let everything up here decide everything because the market can allocate resources. And then we forgot all of this. And actually, I want to add a layer to this model, which is that if you if you kind of draw lines here, you can say this is this is what is possible here and now. So this is like is. Um, and we just go for more of everything faster and you know more efficient. Um, and this is also where I mean this is literally where the money is made. Here is where we explore what could things be like, uh, what might what might be. Uh, and and so here it's the symbolic world and political power. It's you know political choices uh, and scenarios. And in science is like oh wow, what if we try and turn it this way or what would happen if we did like this? So, you know, creating new kind of, of knowledge. So this is in my feed. But it's and interesting. Like what ought to be. What ought and to the, be. And the ought. Uh, is a conversation that we've almost given up on in our society, which is disastrous because the tech industry uh, is turning everything upside down and we have just, you know, forgot that we could have a moral compass. And when we talk about education, that's why I, I think this model and, and building roads is so crucial. When we look at education, we need for all the different educational programs from, you know, kindergarten to PhD to make sure that everybody struggles with all of it. It's, it's very interesting. There's there's an aspect about this middle layer. For a moment, I was kind of thinking, well, should aesthetics be at that mid, in that middle layer? But of course, it needs to be because it is the form giving element. You know, in 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 design, you're talking about two aspects. You're talking about form and function, and and the aesthetics is very much sort of the you know the the kind of uh, uh, the formal side of it, and the the science in many ways the function. How does it work? How do we, you know, how does the engine work? Um, and then, of course, the aesthetics is what does it look like? What does it sound like? And of course, with car engines, uh, 
I was amazed to find out at some point the amount of money they spent on making those engines sound good. Uh, just, I mean, the sound of the door, uh, car door, when it, yeah. when it shuts. That's right. The whole, you know, uh, tech science uh, production, yeah. you know, field of car door sound engineers. That's right. So it's, it's very interesting the way you structure this. Um, now, um, of course, in a way, it gives us a compass, doesn't it? You know, how education could move from quite a narrow understanding of education today to uh, a, a more, you know, a broader understanding, a more grounded, a holistic understanding of what education could and indeed should probably be. Um, are you working on this on your own or how, how I mean, this is such a big idea. And, uh, and so, of course, if you want to move towards some kind of implementation, then we need partners, don't we? So how, how are you taking this forward? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm doing it uh, in, in talks like this. I'm, I'm writing some papers about it. We have an article about it on uh, our website. Uh, there are some slides. Uh, we can share a link to a book that I wrote recently that is, that is called What is Bildung? Uh, the model is in there. Uh, there are also links to some slides that uh, that you can use yourself. Um, I have not put all the slides there because I have some of them that I use when I go out and do the lectures. Um, but the uh, the basic idea is mine. I've been working on it since two thousand and five, and it has you know it, it took a while before I realized that this petal here is called aesthetics. Um, it had a, a number of names and I called it art and it was like, no, that is too limiting because we also have, you know, uh, pop music and singing in the family and all that kind and of- And car doors. I mean, you, you said it, you know, there's nothing artistic yeah. about it, but it's very really? much pop. That's yeah. right. So, so, I mean, it, it, it took a while and it also, I mean, I actually started out just focusing on production, science and narrative. I mean, those were the three domains and power. That I, that I was aware of to begin with, that all societies have. Um, and then, uh, and that was when I was writing my, my first books and, and was looking at big history. And I was like, what, what is it that, that, what was it that changed over the course of history? And, and is there a way to describe? Um, and, and so what I, what I realized was that what happened during the Renaissance was that um, science and power pulled themselves away from from narrative from the well first the science pulled away from religion and then power political power pulled away from religion and then religion was stuck with what narrative um and then i also felt that there must be something between or that the narrative and production share and that was the one that i couldn't figure out but i definitely very quickly found out that what science and production share is the development of technology absolutely and, and the common denominator between narrative and science is ethics. It's, it's process and principles. Absolutely. So, um, so that, was how, that was how it started. And, and so um, if we use it as a picture of modernity, it, it is really, you know, the more that these domains have separated and, and specialized, the more complex society is, the more complex education has to be, the longer we have to go to school and uh, the, the more complex um, each, each of the, the domains become and the more they specialize and the harder they have to communicate with the other domains, which is one of the problems also. I mean, we, I mean how many engineers know the cultural heritage that we come from and the, the roots of the moral values that we have and that keep our societies together? And how many of the artists could actually take some of their latest science and turn it into new symbols that would make sense to us in a different way? There are artists that do that. I met some of them, they're really great. Um, but we, we need way more collaboration across the, the rows, so to speak. And one of the jobs of the political power then is to balance these and make sure that all of the money that is made up here gets channeled out into the rest because we cannot have a balanced and functioning society if, uh, if all the resources are up here. Yeah, but also power to me to some extent seems to be, if you like, a function of those six pedals. So I, I think there is a sort of a kind of, if, if you would want to sort of, sort of manifest or somehow show how, how your kind of system empowers 
you know, it would be sort of an integration of those six pedals and power would emerge at the center, not power over, but the very much a sort of Habermasian power two. Um, and and that's, that's very interesting. Now, uh, one thing, last thing I would like to kind of sort of like touch on uh, uh, during this talk, and this is um, the relevance of this model in today's world. Um, you know, there, there is, you know, for the lack of a better word, sort of an emergent of, sort of an anti-establishment, sorry, an anti-enlightenment, and of course also anti-establishment, but very much an anti-enlightenment kind of movement that basically does no longer accept science as truth uh, and wants to have its own truths, its own, you know, fictional or fake narrative. So it's, uh, it's conspiracy theories or whatever you would want to call it. And I, I'm, can only speculate, but one, one thought that crossed my mind is, is, is when, when, when that kind of sort of integrated body of knowledge that is sort of symbolized through the, the building roads, when that disintegrates, fragments, uh, then you could well get a society that looks a bit like what we have today. Is that, is that a sort of a fair enough? Absolutely. And I mean, what, what we have done uh, over the past generation, I mean, there, there, there are two movements here. One is that the complexity of everything is so mind boggling that it's just hard to handle. And it's hard to handle for all of us. Um, this model actually helps you to break, break it down into seven different domains and you can look at them separately, which I hope is, is one step towards, you know, a little bit of peace of mind. Um, but the, if we have an educational system that just focuses on this, and whereas science education is not about learning the process and not exactly knowing what people actually do at universities and what, what does make somebody a professor? I mean, I went, I went to school for 12 years, yeah, through high school, until I realized, oh, that is what science is. I mean, they could have told me in the third grade that when you have biology, the reason why we know this thing about the ants and this thing about the bees is that there are all these adults who use this method. And if they had repeated that once a year until the end of high school, I would have known the scientific process, you know, uh, by heart. So, but we don't teach that. I mean, we just teach the result and, you know, tell the children about the bees and the ants and the sun and all this stuff. And it's like, we hope that they will remember the result instead of teaching the ethics and the process. So if we taught that better, we would all be better off for a lot of reasons. Um, but then when you have all this technology that disrupts, you, you lose your job, you can't follow the news on TV. I mean, there's all that stuff that's just too complicated for me to understand and too complex. I have these narratives about who I am and what is my role in the family? Uh, what is my role in my local community? And uh, who are these people and these people and these people to tell me that there is this virus that I haven't caught yet that will have all these, you know, horrible consequences. Um, and particularly if these people have not, you know, created this, I mean, turned this into language and symbols that I resonate with. And actually the concept of resonance and, and the arts is, I mean, the whole chapter in its own. Um, but if I don't resonate with what is being said in all of these domains, and if I only feel anxiety and fear and something that I cannot grasp, um, it makes total sense that people go for, for, there's something comforting about conspiracy theories, because one of the crucial points of a conspiracy theory is that somebody is behind this. Oh, yes, and if absolutely. somebody isn't behind this, somebody is in control. But if nobody is behind this, nobody is in control. And that is freaking scary. So if these people are not in control, if these people are not in control, and these people are not in control either, it is actually more comforting to tell a story about somebody being in control and it can be Hillary Clinton in a pizza parlor, uh, or it can be the Jews, or it can be aliens, or it can be, um, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Bill well, Gates. I have a, but yeah, it feels good. That's right. I have a cognitive. I was once many years ago in London. I was mugged, and I had a gun between my between my between my eyes. 
And what really freaked me out is he was shaking. And I just thought, Jesus, if you put a gun at people, at least be cool about it. I know. <laughs> you know, that really freaked me. That was much yes. more if you know than anything else. That he wasn't in right. control. Um, wow. and, and and that's um, now the other thing is so that's a real interesting aspect. The other thing, of course, is that every one of those domains, of course, also can be corrupted to some extent. I mean, the, the very obvious one that came to mind is the commodification of art, which very often becomes production. Um, rather than really kind of doing justice to the kind of the creative um, mandate and the kind of the, the sort of aesthetic mandate, it, it becomes uh, production and, and it's basically supplying product to the art market. But of course, when you think about this, of course, science also can become corrupted. And so in fact, can every single aspect of this? They can all be corrupted. Uh, I mean, production can be all about exploitation. I mean, yes, that's, that's why right. we have the climate crisis. That's that's why we have pollution. That's why we have, uh, you know, slavery. There's 40 million people in slavery as we speak. Yeah. Um, tech can be corrupted and, you know, cause disruption. And so surveillance we, and so forth and so forth. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. You can, you're going to have narrative that can become fundamentalism and narrow-mindedness and stupidity. And you can have ethics that is too advanced for people to grasp. You can take the whole woke uh, movement, which actually makes a lot of good points, but it, it has also become a fanatic movement of cancel culture. So what they're saying is actually, I mean, a lot of it is wonderful, but anything wonderful that doesn't allow for something non-wonderful to exist as well is gonna be problematic no matter how wonderful it is. So, I mean, if you have ethics that is too advanced for people to grasp and you then apply, uh, you know, intolerance in order to implement it, then ethics is just as problematic as, as any of the other ones. And of course, science can become incredibly arrogant and you got all these scientists who just discuss among themselves. And if the rest of us don't understand what they're saying, it's like our problem because we didn't pay attention in school. One last question before we wrap up. Are you working with any schools directly to kind of to with this methodology? And wouldn't that or if not, would that not be something interesting to do? To kind well, of I would love that. Um, and uh, I mean, we the, the, the think tank Nordic Bildung uh, is uh, three years old or three and a half by now. We started in March 2018. And we were on the uh, wonderful trajectory of reaching out uh, in the beginning of 2020 and then came COVID and we went online like everybody else. And instead of you know uh, finding institutions and applying this model together with them, we actually created a European building network, uh, which you can find online. There is also a North American building network and a Latin American building network and a global building network wow. where we bring people together to explore building and a lot of people are very uh, enthusiastic about this model uh, like I am uh, and so we're, we're having conversations about this and we have online events and we also have real uh, live events and of course more of them as, as COVID is at some point uh, you know uh, being um, handled uh, but we uh, so we're so we're working on that but we have um, I mean, we survived the COVID, uh, able to pay rent uh, and keep our office. And that was like, yay. Yay. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, this has been a traumatic time for all of us. It's been, and looking at the numbers in Germany at the moment, we're far from, you know, through it. Um, so it's, 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 it's a terrible, a terrible situation for a lot of us. And of course, Reboot 2030 is another one of those solutions to try to kind exactly. of keep the dialogue yeah. going because what, what else can we do? What I would like to do, Elena, is, is to think about, you know, to, to carry on this conversation into the future and to think about another um, another get together virtual, uh, presumably in about six months time. And there's two things that kind of are in mind. One is um, I, I would like to, and probably that's the one in six months time. I I have a good understanding now what 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 your understanding of building is and what the the building uh, building rose model is. I would like to talk a lot more about application um, because I think that is really where it also where a lot of the excitement lies. Is is when you talk about how this could actually transform uh, sort of like educational um, systems. Could um, could and, transform. And, and the, um education but it could also transform organizations i mean this okay, is really, that's right real some 
prism through which to see any group of people and how, I mean, what are we focusing on? Are yeah. we doing the right things in all of these seven domains? That's right. I mean, why shouldn't a political party be structured along yeah. those lines? Wouldn't that make why sense? Why do we have politics? I mean, political agendas on all of them. And, and do we know what we're talking about? And particularly, I mean. That's right. So so this is this is one thing. So I think maybe our next talk will be very much about application. Uh, and then hopefully that we're moving at that start beginning to move beyond you know pandemic restrictions it would be nice then beyond that maybe to focus on a couple of cases where you actually are going into organizations so that we can talk about yeah i think that would be a good way to do it so we have another one in about six months time talk about application in a not in an abstract but in a remote way without actually going into organizations and then maybe hopefully you know like you know in eight to 12 months we will be able to kind of return to some kind of normal uh, certainly where we can have more social contact and and, and explore activities outside uh, our own four walls um lena thank you very much one last thing um what i will do if you could send me a list of useful links um you know you've mentioned a couple of things that you think would be really good um, also, your contact details, if there are people listening in who would want to kind of, you know, work with you as a consultant. Um, so so give, give us all that stuff. I will then post it alongside, included with this uh, video, um, both on YouTube and on the reboot.2030.org website. And, and hopefully something will come from that. Uh, Lily, thank you very, very much. This has been a great talk. Uh, I really like the way you outwitted me with this with this kind of wall thing because, of course, I did say to you, no, please don't talk more about often that. It actually works. It works really well. It works much better. It's much nicer. It's it, it's great, and I can hear your voice well. It's not that you're too far away from the microphone, so it really works really well, and it kind of breaks it up in a nice way. Much better than to have this kind of Zoom kind of um, uh, PowerPoint slide, which I always find quite well because people do it so much. I'm I'm quite always hoping to get away from that. Lena, thank you very much. It's been a great thank pleasure. You. And maybe, you know, like outside of this, we can kind of keep in touch anyway. Let's do that. Thank you thank very you. much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, Kai. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.